You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Thanks very much indeed, Luke. Um, Luke, would you mind being able to allow me to be able to um, share my screen as well, if that's okay? Um, so yeah, I'm going to um, share a PowerPoint a few times this evening, and the, the first thing that I'm going to try to be able to show you is the um, the timeline that we're sort of working with whilst um, we're thinking about um, these events. So yeah, hopefully you're able to to see this. Um, I've showed it you before, and it's, it's pretty much the same as uh, what you've seen before. Um, you think really in this series, we started off, didn't we, with Cyrus um, a number of years ago now, uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, from the time of Nehemiah, when he allowed the Jews to return to um, Jerusalem. And so we remember Zerubbabel and Jeshua were the two men, you know, Zerubbabel is the one who was actually uh, the grandson to, or the great grandson of Josiah, uh, we might think of it that way. Um, and then, yeah, Jeshua was the high priest who went with him and the two of them got back and the, the altar of the temple got built under them. Um, and then they had some uh, challenges, didn't they? So God sent Haggai and uh, Zechariah, the prophets. And so we got in and did some study there. Um, and then they got the temple finished, which was great. And that got us to the end of Ezra 6. And then we believe there's uh, quite a large gap in the narrative where Esther would actually fit in um, before then Ezra turns up and he comes on the scene. And that's where we were last week in Ezra 7 uh, to the end of chapter um, uh, 10 of Ezra. And then, yeah, today we're picking up in Nehemiah, which we believe to be some uh, 13 years on. And when I say we believe to be 13 years on, you know, we can prove that with ease. So if you look at Ezra chapter 7, um we know that uh in verse eight it talks about that he came to jerusalem in the fifth month which was the seventh year of the king so the seventh year of the king ezra comes to jerusalem and in nehemiah chapter one and verse one this is in the 20th year so it's 13 years later that nehemiah now comes on the scene so um if you've not sort of got those notes you're absolutely welcome to um have this this powerpoint when we get to the end of this um but for now i'm just going to come off that and uh we're going to focus on chapter one because things are clearly not good in jerusalem are they um even though ezra went there and you know did his utmost to try to get things um spiritually in a better place and no doubt he did still sadly 13 years later things were in a mess so much so that it seems that Hanani um, comes from Judah. I think that's how we should read it. He's come from Judah to, to tell Nehemiah what's going on. So reading verse one, the word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month of Chislu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. 
The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So it's devastating, isn't it? And it seems that Hanani is hoping that Nehemiah can do an Esther almost and, and use his circumstances to talk to the king. It seems, doesn't it, that he's come back to talk to Nehemiah, to tell him about the situation uh, in the hope that just as Mordecai was able to talk to Esther and she was able to influence then the king, so to Nehemiah in his position, which was a hugely important position, uh, he might be able to influence the king. But Nehemiah must have been absolutely distraught when he heard those words in verse three, that the people are in great affliction and reproach. Um, th those two words are used together in Jeremiah 24 and verse nine regarding the naughty figs. You know, now you think of the, the parable of the figs in Jeremiah 24, that the good figs were supposed to be those who could go into captivity, but be brought back again and, and would have learned the lesson that the naughty figs were those who, who went, were taken to captivity, uh, never to kind of return. So to hear that they were in great affliction and reproach, you know, really was sort of saying that it's almost like the whole point of the captivity hadn't brought about the good figs. What a mess it was. And, and the walls of the city had broken down. And so he's devastated. And, and it, what he does then is, is turn to God. So it says in verse four, it came to pass when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And again, whenever we're sort of looking at these things, we're just thinking, what do we learn from men of God like this? And Clearly, one thing to do, isn't it, is in when we hear the terrible news, things that can really emotionally get to us, the, the right thing to do is to turn to God in prayer. And men of God bring scriptures into their prayers. Now, just time and again, you'll see that when studying uh, any prayer in scripture, that time and again, it brings scripture into the prayer. Um, I once heard a brother say from that, that verse in Ecclesiastes, God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That it's not so much saying let your prayer be short. Uh, that's perhaps not, not a bad idea quite often. But it's more to say, let your words be few. Cut down on your own words and use the words of God in prayer. And certainly men of God, like Nehemiah, use scriptures in their prayers. Uh, if you just scan down your margin, you'd be able to see links to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Daniel, uh, the Psalms. Um, and yeah, for the purpose of today, we're, we're going to just sort of try and get an overview of the first six chapters of Nehemiah. So we, we can't go into it in detail. But if you look through, you just immediately see the, these connections and uh, turn, turn to them and sort of recognise that this is where Nehemiah is drawing from. But we'll just kind of finish that in verse 11, where he concludes his prayer. Oh, Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day, grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. And so he's praying, isn't he, that God will grant him mercy as he realises he's got this mission. He's clearly frightened about this. Now, he knows, like Esther, that he's perhaps taking his life into his hands to, to go before the, the most powerful man and to ask what he needs to ask. It's not an easy thing for him to do. He recognises that he needs to wait for the right opportunity, a bit like Esther again, 
So he doesn't immediately do something. It's some months later when Nehemiah is in front of the king and he shows his emotion about this. So it says in chapter two and verse one, came to pass in the month Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. So as I say, we're, we're a few months on now. Um, and we have to think to ourselves, oh, wonder why it was in this month that it came out. Well, clearly we would suggest that Nehemiah's not just sort of like, you know, raced into it. He, he, you know, he's trying to prayerfully go about this. He's looking for a sign. But for some reason on this particular day, his emotions come out. So why? Why is it that they come out at this particular time? Well, firstly, we think it's worth pointing out that the month Nisan was when Haman set a date to destroy the Jews. So to give you a cross reference for that, um, if we went to, you know, for in our Bible, we're going forward, aren't we? But we're actually going backwards in time, we believe. So if you went to Esther chapter three, Esther three um, and verse seven, it says in the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahaziris, they cast per, that is the lot before Haman from day to day, from month to month, the 12th month, that is the month Adar. Um, and if you sort of you know, read through and went just back to verse six, you'd, you'd be able to see it. Um, this is the time when Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews. So we can understand completely what feelings that would have evoked in Nehemiah. But I wonder if there's perhaps even more to that than this, that this um, was also the month when Israel left Egypt. So now we're going years and years back in history, aren't we? Um, but you remember that at that time they were told to daub the blood of the Passover around the doorposts. Now, the Bible very clearly connects blood to wine. It's not just a New Testament thing. You know, you see in Genesis, you see in Isaiah that blood is connected to wine as a sort of um, a metaphor for it. So, so it might be that as Nehemiah poured the wine in this month, the month Nisan, which used to be in the Hebrew calendar, it's called the month Abib, was the month they left Egypt, that Nehemiah is just overcome with emotion. He's pouring the wine for the king knowing that the exiles who had left Babylon were not able to set up the promised land as they had hoped. You know, like those Jews who had this opportunity to leave Egypt okay, on that Passover night, they left with all of the, the, the intention of being able to go to the promised land to set up this, this kingdom, essentially, eventually. And yet it didn't happen then. And then they'd been taken into exile and they had this another opportunity to leave Babylon and to be able to set up the kingdom. And once again, it hadn't gone as they'd hoped. Well, whatever Nehemiah's reason for being so sad at this particular time, certainly the king picks up on it, doesn't he? So let's just pick up in chapter two again, verse two. Wherefore the king said unto me, why is thy countenance sad? Sing thou art not sick. This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid and said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lies waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? It's just like the Esther situation, isn't it? Okay. Now, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven 
again, I, I find that really moving just to think of the fact that Nehemiah in that situation suddenly sees that the opportunity that he's been waiting for has come. That, that in his emotion in saying, well, how can I not? Like, no, my, the, the place of my father's sepulchres lies waste. The gates are ever consumed with fire. And, and he's afraid and he, he's thinking the king could right now just send me off for good. And the king's answer is this. For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Well, we know, I'm sure, that the king gives him permission to go to Jerusalem. And next to verse six, it says there that the king, or he set the king a time. And, and you might put in your margin there, chapter five and verse 14, which tells us that Nehemiah was there 12 years. So that's quite some time, isn't it? That Artaxerxes just trusts and says, Nehemiah, what do you make request? I said him a time, I said I need 12 years and the king is willing to give him that. Uh, and the king would have no doubt seen in the witness of Ezra and then Nehemiah, hardworking, honest individuals. Uh, and once again, he, he's asked, like in the time of Ezra, to write a letter to ensure that the work could happen. So it says, um, Nehemiah says to the king in verse seven, if it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the city, and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into it. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So like Ezra, Nehemiah recognises the hand of God in all this. And remember us looking for that phrase last week, going from Ezra chapter 7 through to the end. Uh, and here we've got it again, you know, there in verse uh, in verse 8, we just read it, according to the good hand of God upon me. Um, in verse 18, uh, when he speaks to some of the elders, he says, I told them of the good hand of my God, which was upon me. And so, it's, you know, you possibly see it again in, as well, actually, in chapter 1 and verse 10, when he's praying, he talks about God's strong hand. So it seems that Nehemiah, then, is somebody like Ezra who recognises the hand of God in all this. And as he sets off, even though he has the permissions and even though he recognised God is with him, he still comes across adversaries to this cause. Uh, you see that now in verse 10. So, I mean, come to the governors beyond the river in verse 9, gives them the king's letters. Sadly, trouble is just around the corner. Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, um, and uh, Gisham we, we learn of a bit later. And th these three men, Sambalat and Tobiah mainly, but Gisham as well, are wound through the narrative now. And the men who are looking to try and bring Nehemiah down from the work that he's, lo he's looking to do. They're a bit like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes that, that came to the Lord Jesus. They're men that are there just trying to cause trouble to stop the work. And just as the Lord used scripture to deal with those that came against him, so does Nehemiah. And you actually see in verse 19 and 20, he has to address Sambalat, um, Tobiah, and there you see Gisham the Arabian in 
verse 19. And Nehemiah cites Deuteronomy 23 back to them. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. For they hired Balaam, the son of Beal. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So, so he's citing that, isn't he? That uh, passage from Deuteronomy 23. And what Nehemiah is say, really saying is, look, people who aren't interested in the welfare of the children of Israel, that, that's all Nehemiah's come for, isn't it? You know, that's what he is about. Now you look at the end of verse 10, that these men are grieved that someone has come who's looking to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And for Nehemiah, well, if you are not interested in the welfare of the children of Israel, then you've got absolutely no right, uh, nor portion, nor memorial in Jerusalem. And that's still an absolute fact now, isn't it? People who are not interested in the welfare of Israel, you know, they've got nothing for, the, 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 the kingdom is not going to be for them. You've got to have this desire for the welfare of Israel. Well, Nehemiah is not going to be put off by these men. Instead, he goes out on a donkey uh, back in at the end, sort of halfway through chapter two in verse 12, I am. And he inspects the walls so that he's got a clear idea of the mess that he's got to try to, to work to deal with. And it's interesting. We read in Mark 11. This is a good cross reference against verse 12. Mark 11 and verse 11 says that the Lord Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple and when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come. So the Lord Jesus, you know, we know that he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. You know that, Mark 11, verse 11. And he enters into Jerusalem and he looks around about on all things, and the eventide was come. So there's a kind of sense that Nehemiah, uh, he's going. We know that for him it's more than nighttime, but he's going in and he's looking round about to survey um, what needs to be done here and having done that he then addresses the the elders who are people who are there and perhaps some of those elders are ones like uh, Hananiah who've perhaps come back we know if later in Nehemiah certainly that he has come back with Nehemiah to to work on Jerusalem so he's addressing now these elders and we'll just pick this out in verse 17 he says to them you see the distress that we are in how Jerusalem lies waste, the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the good hand of my God, which was upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for this good work. I want you to just note the similarity of the language from verse 17 there back to chapter one and verse three. So do you remember I pointed out the word affliction and reproach came up in Jeremiah 24 verse nine in relation to the naughty figs. And these are the same two words now used here in verse 17 when he says, you see the distress, that's the word affliction, the evil that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste. Uh, and then in the end of verse 17, we'd be no more a reproach. So we don't want to be in this situation, Nehemiah saying, and we're going to do something about this. We're going to get on uh, and we're going to build. Uh, and then we see them like it's not long before they, they get cracking and get building. But just 
uh, one more sort of connection we tried to make before uh, we do that. Nehemiah had prayed in chapter one and verse 11 that God would prosper him. Okay, I just wanted to pick out that particular word. Nehemiah 1 and verse 11, Nehemiah prayed that God would prosper him and grant him mercy in the sight of the king. And he'd seen that happen. He knew the hand of God was guiding him. So he could say with absolute confidence, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Now, that's uh, where Nehemiah's um, mindset is now, that the God of heaven, he would prosper them in this work. So we then realise that they are going to prosper in the, in the work they're about to, to get cracking with. And we come into chapter three, where that we see who is repairing which part of the wall. And certainly the word repaired is the key word running through. Um, so I don't know about you. I'm just going to just quickly show you something that I use as a study tool here. Um, if I um, open up, for me, I very often use something called the Blue Letter Bible. Now, I, I'm not uh, trying to sort of say that this is the, uh, the only thing that you can use far from it. But if I just look up in Nehemiah, um, so where are we now? Nehemiah chapter three. And just sort of see how it is that sometimes we, we might do a bit of study like this, that we notice that um, the word repair is coming up. So here, um, I always make sure my settings, so the cog shows you settings, doesn't it? If I click my settings, I always make sure that my strongs numbers are showing. So if yours aren't, that's why. So save preferences and uh, return to my study. Um, and I want to look up this idea of repaired. So find it here and click that word. And um, I can see it's the word hazak, uh, the idea to be strong. Um, and I now can see some which I find really helpful, how often that particular word occurs in each book of the Bible. Uh, so obviously we're in Hebrew, so it's just the Old Testament here. And I can see that it comes up 42 times in Nehemiah, which I can see is more than any other Old Testament book. So it's this really a key word. And if I then click into Nehemiah, um, so now I can just look at within Nehemiah, I can see that really the key is coming through chapter three. So it's time and again in chapter three. So then I go through and perhaps colour something like that so I can just see each time that this is an absolute key word. So I'll stop sharing and hopefully that's not something that's kind of too bugging to you, but you can just see how easy it is that we have the tools to be able to have a look at something like that. Um, but we're then trying to think to ourselves, well, well, what's the lesson that we can learn? So verse four, next unto them repaired Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Kaz, next unto them repaired Meshullam, the son of Berakai, the son of Mashazabil, next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Bernard. So you know, what, what are we going to learn from the fact that repaired is a key word? You know, it can't simply be that we just enjoy some colouring. Well, I think there is a point that we can make that it's the fact that it is mainly repairing helps us to recognise the fact that the foundations were always there. The truth doesn't change. And sadly, the boundaries do get broken down at times within our ecclesias. But we should, what we need to do is be willing to get back to the original and build up 
that's what we're trying to do as Christadelphians, aren't we? You know, when people say to me, you know, what, what do Christadelphians believe that are different? Well, what my primary answer tends to be, we try to get back to what the first century Christians believed. That is what we're trying to do, aren't we? We're trying to get back to that. That's the foundation, the apostles and prophets that we are trying to build on. Well, another common word that comes through Nehemiah chapter three, which is surely significant, is the word next. So, for example, in verse two, next unto him builded the man of Jericho. Uh, verse four, next unto them, next unto them. You just see that kind of going all the way through. And you might think, come on, like, you know, it's like just telling us the word and is a, a key word. And I'm not necessarily ruling that out. But in this case, just look at chapter three and verse two. And the authorised version margin, anyway, gives a helpful rendering that says the word next literally means in the Hebrew at his hand. It's the Hebrew yaud. So there's a sense of togetherness, hand in hand, this work is being done. And th this point is backed up further when we consider the fact that um, they are building one wall. It's not a series of towers. Gaps would allow the enemy in, wouldn't it? But together, we've got to build on our common foundation. And if somebody starts building away from that foundation, then they're not part of the wall, aren't they? They've made a choice not to be part of that wall. You know, they've chosen not to be in fellowship in that sense. But those of us who are trying to build on the foundation, the word of God, then we are in fellowship with one another. So the idea of next, we can just bring out just a lovely word, the, the idea of being at his hand, hand in hand, we're doing this work together. Well, obviously, in Nehemiah's time, there was a physical lesson as well as a spiritual one. These walls were real. Uh, in fact, the broad wall that's mentioned at the end of verse eight, um, uh, only a couple of months ago, or perhaps less than that, I, I was in Jerusalem and looking at the broad wall. Uh, it was found in 1968, running through Jerusalem. You might think, well, how, how are they only just found that? You know, everyone's known where Jerusalem is for years. But Jerusalem now is simply layer upon layer of history. So all the time, new things are being found as they kind of dig further down, which prove the Bible to be true. Um, and that broad wall is a, a wall that Hezekiah built to make sure that there was more space when the Assyrian invasion were coming. Uh, but it's amazing that you're able to see that wall or part of it uh, still today. Well, coming into chapter four, we, we find that the adversaries will not leave them alone as they're trying to get on with this building. So read in verse one, came to pass that when Samballot heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Were they revived the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. You can see they're just trying to mock, they're trying to drag them down. And again, we see Nehemiah's reaction to this. Verse 4 Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach upon their own head. Give them for a prey in the land of captivity, 
cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. It keeps on going. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together into the half thereof. For the people had a mind to work. And that's a great mind to have, isn't it? But it came to pass that when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, that they were very wroth and inspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of this. Well, that prayer in verse nine is already the fourth prayer that we see of Nehemiah. And there's certainly more to come. But what a helpful example we have in Nehemiah. The challenges that come along in our lives, we should take to God in prayer. And alongside that, we see the need to be proactive in doing something. You know, when we are praying about a situation, we, we shouldn't simply sort of go into a room, shut the door, pray about it and do nothing ourselves. Actually, what we're very often doing in prayer is trying to align our will with God's will. That's what we're trying to do, aren't we? And so we're trying to think, well, what should I do in this situation? And here, Nehemiah, having prayed to God, you know, thinks through and they decide what it is that they're going to do. And so... As he's being proactive, in this case, what he does is arms the labourers and the builders. And it's all kind of very exciting to read. But I'm just going to pick up in verse 17. It says, they which builded on the wall and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one of his hands wrought in the work and with the other hand held a weapon. So you've got this idea that with one hand, he's, he's sort of putting a brick in and the other hand, uh, a weapon is there ready carries on in verse 18 for the builders everyone had his sword girded by his side and so builded and he that sounded the trumpet was by me and i said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people the work is great and large and we are separated upon the wall at one far from another in what place thereof therefore ye hear the sound of the trumpet resort ye thither unto us our god shall fight for us so we laboured in the work and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning until the stars appeared. So Nehemiah also keeps everyone inside the, the, the city at night. We realise that from verse 22. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, let everyone with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labour on in the day. So neither I nor my servants, nor the servants, nor sorry, neither I nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saying with everyone put them off for washing. So what a work ethic they had. They certainly did have this mind to work. And I think it's interesting that many, many years later, when writing to the Thessalonians, the inspired apostle Paul urges the brothers and sisters there to use their time wisely to work. And I'm going to show you some connections. I'll, I'll show you just first of all, um, a quick uh, diagram of the, the walls of Jerusalem. So this is really taken from um, Brother Lane and Sister Kathleen Rittmeyer's in, in a great book that they've done on Nehemiah um, and the walls. And they're able to show, so the, the blue lines there's the, the water, but the black lines are the walls of Jerusalem. 
uh, where and then the gates that are going around it. So we're able to see roughly where Jer- Jer- um, Nehemiah goes off and, and searches on his donkey uh, down past the dung gate and the fountain gate and then gets stuck because there's a, a pile of rubble there and has to, to go back. But yeah, it's just it's great, isn't it? That we can just make these little diagrams um, and get a sense of you know the, the the way in which Jerusalem is laid out. And I have to say, for me, I, I've got this really clear picture. In fact, just if I uh, point out just down here, uh, where, right about where the water gate is um, on this diagram, perhaps a little bit further down, actually around a bit around there. Um, I sat with Sarah, my wife, and uh, Katie, my sister, and, and Jeremy, her husband. Um, only a month or so ago and watched an incredible light show going up onto the the old walls um, showing the story of Nehemiah. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. It was like they it was all outside and they were using multiple projectors to kind of create this movie on the these old walls. Um, it was a really special experience and you know really quite exciting um, and they talked about the enemies coming and they kind of showed the fox kind of coming across it and the, and the idea of what Tobiah was trying to drag them down but amazing to, to think that um, yeah there's these witnesses that are oh, so many people watching these things um, how many people are though are really sort of taking board on this on and trying to think through the lessons that we're going to learn in our own lives uh, sadly not many in our society but it seems most certainly so there's Nehemiah on his journey that um, the Apostle Paul is inspired by God to pick up the example of Nehemiah and those working and uh, so there, there are massive connections that you can make but I'm just going to pick up these particular ones so perhaps should we just turn to Thessalonians and see if we can um, pick up a few of these together I'll leave that on the, the, the screen. So by all means, um, yeah, try to, to fly through, take a photo or just email me afterwards and I'll send you th- this link. But as it says there, the word comfort is a key word in 1 Thessalonians. So I've given you the cross references. And that's what Nehemiah's name means, the comfort of Yah. Um, so in chapter uh, 1 and verse 3, uh, it's actually there. Um, remember about ceasing a work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. And, uh, I can't even see it there. I'm, I'm sure. So perhaps that's worth looking up yourself and just seeing if I've got it there. But there are other times when I have certainly colored it. So I can see it in uh, Nehemiah 2 and verse 11, and it's the word exhorted there. Uh, that's the word for comfort. Uh, chapter 3. And verse two, to comfort you concerning your faith. Uh, chapter three and verse seven, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you. So it certainly is a key word. Have a look to look through and see if you can pick those out. The idea that comes out in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse nine, the apostle says, you remember, brethren, our labor. Uh, so, you know, the work and the travel laboring night and day. Well, we just read, didn't we, in Nehemiah chapter four um, about the fact that they labored in the night and in the day. So Nehemiah four and verse 22, you could pick out. Um, I've got another one on the screen there, the, the day and the night in Nehemiah four and verse nine. So the, but the idea of laboring night and day, you can see for sure. Um, there's in one Thessalonians four and verse four, it speaks about the vessels 
And again, as soon as I see vessels, I'm thinking about Nehemiah, you know, he's the cupbearer. That was his job, wasn't he? To, to look after the vessels. And it, the vessels as a theme, it comes through Ezra and Nehemiah, doesn't it? Because that's what they were um, having to look after, uh, bringing them back from Babylon, getting them into Jerusalem. And we talked about the fact that the vessels in the end are speaking of us, of people. Uh, and that comes through in 1 Thessalonians. The idea of working with their own hands. So um, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 11, he says, uh, study to be quiet, to do your own business, to work with your own hands. So they're being exhorted, the Thessalonians, to, to work in patient waiting of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly, again, in Nehemiah, if you're going to think of an example of people that were good at working with their hands, you'd go to Nehemiah. There they had a mind to work. Um, the idea that they had to be there with their trumpet in their hand at the ready. Um, we noticed that the Thessalonians are famous for the fact that uh, they their word of God sounded out from them. Uh, that's the idea of the, the trumpet sounding. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, we notice that it talks about the, the trump of God in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16. And it's in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17 that he talks about praying without ceasing and what a good example we see in Nehemiah don't we somebody who just keeps turning to God in prayer so th there's just some nice examples and uh, uh, some of the connections and we'll uh, see if we can note one or two others as we go but it's certainly something that you could really enjoy doing just looking for connections between uh, that letter and into second Thessalonians as well and Nehemiah so back in Nehemiah then, um, having done all that he could to prayerfully combat the enemies without, you know, he got Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, giving them these problems. Nehemiah also has to deal with challenges within. And this is, as we're coming into chapter five, becomes really apparent that um, even those who started the building in chapter three didn't necessarily have their hearts in the right place. We know that from their actions further on in Nehemiah. So in a sense, it's almost no surprise that troubles arise. There, there really is real conflict going on at this time. And yet Nehemiah keeps going. And again, I think, brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to take these lessons on in our lives that we can feel at times that within, without, there are such difficulties. We, we can struggle at times to think, you know, what's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is to keep on going, to keep trying our best, to keep putting things to God in prayer and recognizing that even for these great men of God, Ezra and Nehemiah, it wasn't that somehow God just made it like that it all worked well for them, that there was real challenges along the way. And here in chapter five, it says that there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. But there were that said, we, our sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. So that they're struggling in the, the situation with the their brethren, the Jews. So, so what's going on here? Well, bearing in mind, Nehemiah was doing his utmost to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. We know that, don't we, from chapter two. He, he was furious when he heard what was happening here. And what's going on is that some families were struggling to have enough money to eat. And they were borrowing from those who did have a bit more. But the ones who were doing okay 
rather than simply opening their hand to their neighbours, which is what they were instructed to do under the law, instead were lending with interest, with usury. And this was leading to young people being sold to the heathen to try to kind of redeem some of these debts. So, so, so pick up from chapter five and verse six. It says, I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. Then I consulted myself and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said unto them, "Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I said a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, we after our ability have redeemed our brethren. So he said, look, we, we've done our utmost to try to help in this situation. We after our ability have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which are sold unto the heathen. And will you even sell your brethren or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace and found nothing to answer. Also, I said, it is not good that you do. Are you not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of the money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine and the oil that you exacted of them. Then said they, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So we do, as thou hast said. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. So Nehemiah has been trying to redeem Jews who have been sold as slaves. And he's saying it's for nothing because some of the richer Jews, their care for the poorer ones was so bad, they didn't care for their own. Those who had been redeemed were being sold back again. Well, Nehemiah's own example was very different to that. His was one of generosity and care for the entire 12 years that he was in Jerusalem. We know from verse 14 that that's how long it was that he was there before returning. However, although we know that from verse 14, that, you know, he was the whole time in those 12 years trying to do the right thing and, and caring for people as the governor, actually, you realise that these problems are coming up in the first seven weeks of him being there. Now, we know that because we realise that he's still working on the wall from verse 16, but the whole wall is finished, we know from chapter 6 and verse 15, in 52 days. So, you know, this is within seven weeks that, yeah, he's trying to get them going, and yet these problems are coming. That So you've got the, the issues of those without, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, etc., and the issues of those within are some of these uh, Jews who are not looking after the others and, and, and treating them badly. And yet, in all that, somehow Nehemiah keeps his integrity, keeps doing the right thing. And that's all we can do, isn't it? You can only, in the end, focus on what we can try to do. And so here in verse 15, just look how it says, what it says of him. The former governors that have been before me were chargeable unto the people and taken of them bread and wine beside 40 shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people. But so did not I because of the fear of God. So his faith in God may had an impact on his life. Yea, also I continued in the work of the wall. Neither bought we any land. All my servants were gathered thither unto the work. 
Moreover, there were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers besides those that came unto us from among the heathen that were round about us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me and one in ten days store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not either bread or the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon this people. Think upon me, my God, for good according to all that I've done for this people. So once again, we see a connection here to the situation with Paul and the Thessalonians, because Paul, like Nehemiah, took nothing from others. He paid his way. Just again, the whole Nehemiah chapter five and come to two Thessalonians two. And it's an interesting thing because in principle, it's no bad thing that the workman is paid for his hire. You know, that uh, the ox is fed for what they do. But actually, um, these men made sure that they they paid their way. They weren't in any way trying to just, you know, say, well, fine, you know, you you sort me out. Uh, you you pay my way the whole time and I'll uh, I'll do my thing. Far from it. They paid their way, uh, which is really, really impressive, isn't it? So in 2 Thessalonians 2, look at, um, or 2 Thessalonians 3, sorry, the Apostle Paul says in verse 8, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but look, but wrought with labour and travail night and day. So you've got the idea of the labouring and the travelling night and day again, but you've also got the fact that he wouldn't eat any man's bread for naught, and we linking that up uh, back into Nehemiah chapter 5, and verse 18, yet required not I the bread of the governor. So Nehemiah, he wouldn't take the bread. And the Apostle Paul says, no, I wouldn't do that either. I made sure that I was working. Uh, I had the Nehemiah spirit. So, so what a great job these men were given by God to be building up the ecclesia. And they were setting a personal example in doing that whilst trying to organize these huge building efforts. And that's what the Apostle Paul was doing, wasn't it? Like he was a master builder. We know that from 1 Corinthians 3 in verse 10. Uh, it's the word architecton, you know, so the idea of being an architect, that's what he was doing, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 in verse 10 says. So we're not surprised to see connections between these two master builders. They're doing their utmost to build up. Uh, but ultimately what they're doing is building the ecclesia. That's what they're about. Um, and that's really why you get all these lists of names in Ezra and Nehemiah, because it's the people that in the end are what God is interested in. They're the vessels. They're the bricks. They're, that's what it's about. That's why it's hand in hand that they're, they're doing these things. And actually that idea of hand in hand is also the idea of the cement in the bricks. That That's what it is that's uh, being built up here. People that will serve God. Well, as we come into chapter six of Nehemiah, the parallels begin to take us to the work of the Lord Jesus. And the chapter begins uh, that came to pass when Sambalat, here he is again, Tobiah, Gisham, the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I builded the wall. that There was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates that Sambalat and Gisham sent unto me saying, come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono but they thought to do me mischief. And that is indeed what they're, they're up to. They're trying to cause mischief. Now, I think that there's a lovely cross-reference to put in your margin against the fact there was no breach uh, to Isaiah 58 and verse 12. Uh, that passage says that they uh, that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places, 
Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach. How lovely is that? The repairer of the breach. So that's Isaiah 58 and verse 12. What a great reference there to think about Nehemiah. And that in itself is something that's just, again, worth trying to study. If you get into Nehemiah, looking how and clearly he knew he wasn't the Messiah. He knew the 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. There's no sense at all that he would have thought that. But but like godly men, he wanted to be like the Messiah. So, so many of the, the prophecies about the Messiah, you're able to see connections into the life of Nehemiah. You know, like Moses counted the affliction of Christ, actually a greater order than, than, than the uh, reproach of Egypt. That's what he was willing to do. So Nehemiah has got that desire to sort of take on the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, clearly those words are about the Lord. And yet their obvious fulfillment in the work of Nehemiah was doing to build the old waste places, to raise up the foundation, to prepare, to repair the breach are things that we should be noting. And we also note that in this chapter, the adversaries try to bring Nehemiah down from the work that he's doing five times. So I want you to see this now, verse three. I sent messengers unto them saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. Then sent Sambalat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. So five times they're trying to bring Nehemiah down from the work. Now, here is a man who wouldn't be distracted from the will of the father. He was a man who foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to, again, share my screen here and show you something which I think is, is just amazing, really. So let's just see now how that actually five times they come and look to bring down the Lord Jesus Christ from the work. So it says in Matthew 27 and verse 39, those who pass by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Isn't it interesting? There they are talking about him as the builder. Come down from the cross. And then in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. Come down from the work. Then in the same way, can I get to the next screen? The robbers who were crucified up with him also heaped insults on him. So now four times in the same way they are doing it. And the soldiers also are looking to do the same. The soldiers mocked him also coming to him and offering him vinegar saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Five times. They're all looking to get him to come down. But of course the Lord wouldn't. He was doing a great work. And I wonder if the Lord Jesus' mind went to Nehemiah. Because we read his prayer in chapter 6 and verse 9. They all made us afraid, saying their hands shall be weakened from the work that shall not be done. Now, therefore, O God, 
strengthen my hands. You wonder if that was the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ as he looked to get that great work done. Nehemiah's determination to trust in God ensured that he did get the wall finished. It says in verse 15, so the wall was finished. And certainly in the context of our thinking, we remember the Lord Jesus' final words on the cross. It's John 19 and verse 20 that says, or the Lord Jesus says, it is finished. You can't help notice, too, that in verse 16, we read, it came to pass when all our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were round about us saw these things. They were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. And certainly the cross reference I put down is Luke 23 and verse 47. When the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. He recognized that this is the work of God. There's no doubt that God was blessing this work, an amazing accomplishment to finish it in 52 days. They had to struggle, constantly being undermined. But God's strength is made perfect in weakness. It's in the difficulties of life that we come to trust God. We realize we have this treasure in earthen vessels. that The excellency of the power might be of God. Now, although the war was finished, Nehemiah had only just begun his work of seeking the welfare of the children of Israel. And having had to deal with the problems without in chapter four, then dealt with the problems within in chapter five, everything becomes even harder now because the two combine. And the key problem that he's having to deal with are people supposedly in the ecclesia who are wanting to build relationships with the world. So read in verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them, for there were many in Judah sworn unto him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehanan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the daughter of Berechiah, and also they reported his good deeds before me, and uttered my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. Now, this is such a strong lesson for us to learn in ecclesial life. Once people build relationships with the world, they're quick to start justifying their wrong behaviour. We saw how in the time of Ezra, people had mixed marriages. Some of them did the right thing and ended the marriage. But sadly, Tobiah's marriage didn't end. And now Tobiah's son was married to another Israelite family. Meshullam was a key builder. We know that from chapter three. But he had not built the wall in his family life, had he? His daughter had married Tobiah. And it's a bit difficult because obviously we don't know for sure that Meshullam blessed it. In fact, I would suggest from later in Nehemiah that Meshullam if he did bless it, he made some changes to his life and sort of got back on board again. But but these things are happening. And it's really difficult. And what they are doing, we know from this, at this time, that it seems that Michelle is not in a good place because it seems that he's amongst those in verse 19 
who reported of Tobias good works before me. Now, that is just such a classic thing, isn't it? You, you, you sort of, p- people who would say, well, you've got to get to know him. You know, he's such a nice guy. Th- these are walls from within. And it's so distressing that it's happening in the brotherhood today. And we'll only get worse. Rather than wanting to be holy, brothers and sisters start trying to justify others, you know, when they've building those relationships with the world, trying to push boundaries, losing sight of the truth and the desire to be on the foundation. That's what we should be building on. Now, of course, we want to see good in people. But remember, we worship the creator, not the creature. You know, the creator comes first. That's the definition of good. And it's that that we're building on. Uh, and the justifying of wrong behavior is a weariness to God. I know that because in Malachi chapter two, and we will get on to Malachi next week, I can assure you. Malachi talks about the fact that it says, you wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, well, wherein have we wearied him? Well, when you say everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And that is exactly what is going on here. They reported his good deeds before me. You're talking about Tobiah and, you know, we'll see in later studies, Tobiah, you know, is a real baddie. And yet they are trying to justify him. So next week in our study, we will look to carry on in Nehemiah and see then uh, where Malachi fits into the picture. Uh, And then we'll have a, a study or two more on Malachi. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen